Well, certainly a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks um, for uh, Josh and Richard for coordinating this, I think, and uh, certainly great to remind ourselves that there are millions uh, of, of faithful believers throughout all the world that are praising the same Lord, and wherever we go, we know there's a bond that joins us together, and that's the blood of Christ, and all of the other things that are the focus of many in this life to us are uh, not not that important. Uh, and that will certainly come up in this lesson because as James read for us this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8 we're going to we're going to look at that context because uh, Paul speaks to a uh, faithful brother, Timothy, and reminds him of not only the power of the gospel, but of some very key uh, teachings that should motivate us as Christians day, day by day to shine forth in this world, the hope that, w- that is within us, and certainly to uh, that what we have committed and entrusted to God will be kept in safekeeping until that day uh, that God calls us uh, home. So, uh, in 1939, it was a time of uh, great excitement in a way there's some new uh, technologies that were uh, coming into the scene and that was when the Wizard of Oz was being um, produced all throughout the country and throughout theaters everywhere and uh, but there was a desire to put that on on television back when television used to be good and uh, and there were some a lot of you know good family type of shows back then, but uh, producer uh, Mervyn Leroy and the executives of Metro uh, Golden Mayor were trying to figure out how to introduce uh, color to America, if you will, on TV. And so um, the technology that Mr. Leroy had, had designed was called Technicolor. And so, he wanted to use The Wizard of Oz, which was a a major production, become uh, quite popular everywhere, to uh, introduce, uh, for the first time, Technicolor. And so, what they did was, they decided to begin the the, the movie in black and white, and... And then, um, all throughout, as we know the story of Dorothy and, you know, the tornado that takes the house and spins it in the air, uh, he illustrated in that cyclone um, a torrent of color, kind of a, you know, of of grays and uh, some reds and yellows and you have furniture and things spinning in the air and bicycles and as we know uh, I'm sure all of us have seen Wizard of Oz but you know when that 
that storm ended, and, and the house was placed uh, in Oz. You know, it goes back to black and white there uh, until, until the door was flung open, and Dorothy steps out into this just bursting color of Oz. The whole, you know, countryside bursted with color. The flowers, the, the reds and the oranges and yellows and the, the outfits of the munchkins were bright and um, everything, the yellow brick road was in color. Everything was bright, lively, and vivid and it was as if for the first time uh, light was revealed uh, through through that that movie, and so what do we see here, which is such a a, a powerful, uh, much more powerful reminder of us of what little they knew under the old law compared to what we know today. Well, as James read for us, uh, it starts out. Uh, we, well, let's go ahead and, and, and look at the very central verse that I want to focus on this morning, and that's verse 10, where uh, we see that God's purpose and grace, which was talked about in verse 9, uh, was given to us in Christ before the world began. And so we're going to talk about how we don't need to seek out our purpose. God's already given us. His purpose before the world began. Uh, so there's no um, uh, no need to read The Purpose Driven Life necessary, although there's some great points I'm sure that book makes. I've read a few of the chapters. But uh, we already know our purpose. And, uh, and then we see that, um, that our purpose and our, our, the grace has been revealed by the appearing of Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's as if Christ, through his appearing, through his death, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension into heaven, he put a spotlight on what it really is like to live in God, and then ultimately to dwell eternally with God. Both of those aspects. So you've got uh, life on earth, the godly life that, that God intended for us, and then that immortal life that uh, was a promise to us that wasn't really known about in the old law. They knew so little about the afterlife. And that's why what a, a joy we have to now, uh, through Christ, to be able to understand a little bit more about, uh, about life in Christ. In the old law, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and start back in verse 8. Um, and I, I like what I've seen on a chart before that, you know, in the patriarchal age, you could call that age the starlight age because there was very little known about God's plans for mankind and uh, very little known about a mediator uh, that would be Jesus Christ. 
And then you see under the law of Moses a, a moonlight. You could call that the moonlight uh, time because there was a little bit more known. Uh, but it was still not until the time of Christ that it was a sunlight uh, era, you could call that, because the fullness of what God had planned for us was known through Christ. Still there's some mysteries, of course there's some things that we won't know and fully comprehend until that day, which we read in verse 12, uh, Paul was entrusting to God uh, his faith and his, his confidence that God would uh, deliver on those promises on that day. Uh, but certainly compared to the patriarchal era, compared to the law of Moses and, and what the Jews understood, we are so richly made aware of uh, God's promises that include immortality and life in Christ. So starting there in verse 8, <coughs> Paul says, uh, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. So why did he ask that they share with him in the sufferings for the gospel? Um, well, certainly we know that the servant is not greater than his master. Jesus said, if I was, if I'm persecuted, then you will be persecuted as well. And we need to have that compassion with our brethren that are certainly persecuted, just as they were to be with Paul, ultimately understanding that they too should face persecution. Uh, we know in Hebrews chapter 13 how our attitude should be toward those who are suffering among us. Verse, uh, starting in verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Remember the prisoners as if you were chained with them. That's powerful. So what, what's that going to motivate me to do when I see my brother struggling? I think uh, we look at other verses and we see that it's not just persecution, but it's struggling with health problems, struggling financially well we're going to be we're going to have that compassion uh, and so there's something though about suffering for Christ that should bring about a joy within us as we see in uh, the book of Acts when uh, Paul and Silas they were put before the council and they were um, ultimately told you do not teach any more in this name of Jesus Christ. And they said, well, which should we do? Is it better to obey you, men, or should we obey God? And they were flogged and then 
released. Well, they rejoiced that they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And we should, as well, whenever we endure um, rejection today from friends, co-workers, uh, those that don't have the same hope that we share. Uh, it talks about, too, that, that God has saved us, verse 9, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So, so this... Um, this is beautiful. Before there was a creation, before Noah built the ark, before the Jews, through Solomon, designed and, and uh, rather built the temple, God gave them the design. But before they built the temple, before all of those things ever happened, our purpose was determined. God had determined that prior to his creation. And he had also predetermined the grace. It says the purpose and grace was determined before time began. He knew how richly he would bless mankind through Christ. But it wouldn't be revealed fully until Christ died and rose again and overcame death. And so we can not have to uh, question you know, does God have a purpose for me? Well, certainly He does. Certainly His purpose for you is the same as His purpose for me. Now, we might have different talents, different abilities. You might have a, a greater uh, ability to uh, teach publicly. Chuck might have an ability there, whereas I might be someone who is a little bit uh, more uh, helping people privately, you know. But nevertheless, there is a, a same purpose that we have, and that's to glorify God and to ultimately uh, to share this message of hope through Christ so that others might understand this life and immortality that we see revealed in the gospel. So, we know that we are his workmanship created in him for good works. Um, and because his purpose was determined way, way long ago, before time even began, we um, that should help us not to not to be frivolous with our time, not to waste our time with pursuits that aren't central to our purpose, with things that don't, don't glorify God. That should help us. We know that the days are evil. We know that time on this, this, in this life is fleeting. So we need to be about the work, just as Jesus said... Um, my Father works and I am always working. You know, He didn't put off a good deed during the Sabbath day. He was always working. He was always 
looking to please the Father, always looking to carry out His purpose of, of pleasing the Father. And we should too. Now, in verse 10, he goes on to say, we have to connect it with verse 9, because uh, we read, according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, has now been revealed by the appearing of our Lord of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Um, we see there that through the appearing of Christ, uh, our purpose and grace was made manifest through Christ. We've talked about that, but how did he do that? He first abolished death. Well, people still die today in the, in the flesh, right? But we know that for, for those that have loved His appearing, for those that have devoted and given their lives to Him, there is no more death. First of all, in Romans 6 verse 9, we see that death, death didn't overtake our Lord. Verse 8 and 9. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are alive to God, and that's this life that he speaks of, that has been, there's been a spotlight placed on what true life is as a Christian, what it really means to really live. So, death didn't have dominion over our Lord, and he had promised that in Matthew 16. He said, uh, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. My plans will not be thwarted by my death. <coughs> the church that I'm going to establish will not fail to be established because, because I die on the cross. But we also see that it doesn't overcome his people. Death doesn't overcome his people, even though they die in this earthly body. First of all, <clears throat> we see in um, John chapter 9, I'm sorry, John 11. When Martha comes to, uh, when Jesus arrives after three days at the tomb of Lazarus and meets 
his uh, sisters there. Why is after three days significant? Well, under the Jewish law, they were they felt that the body began to start the process of corruption on the third day. So there couldn't have been just a uh, a sickness or illness that you know a day later he recovers. Certainly after three days, that death was um, well uh, behind him, and that process of corruption would begin. But but notice her statement to Jesus there, John eleven twenty one. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I wish we could have heard how she said that. If she was frustrated, Lord, I know he'll rise again, but that's not what I want right now. I've lost my brother. Uh, I wonder if that's the way she was saying that. But Jesus' answer tells us that he wanted her to understand who he was. That's the essence of his answer is more about him than it was about getting her brother back. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. He says, I am the definition of life. I am the giver of life. We know that he was there in the creation. He gave life to begin with. And we know that 1 Peter chapter 1 says that it's through his precious blood that is not corruptible that we have been born again. And so he is the resurrection. He is the giver of life. And he says, not only that, if anyone believes in me, He will never face death. He doesn't say anyone who's already died will live again, although that, I think, idea might be included in there, there, but he says, if anyone believes in me now, whoever believes in me, verse 26, shall never die. Whoever is alive today and believes in me that I am the life, that I am the one sent from on high to redeem this world from their sins, if they believe in me that he was the one sent from the Father, then they would never die, they'd never face death. And that's important for us to know that He abolished death, certainly in his own uh, resurrection, but he abolished death for you and I. And so we don't have to die anymore. This earthly body, we see Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 5, is just a, a tent. 
we groan in this tent, as we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so, there will come a time when all of death will be a, uh, taken away. Spiritual death has been abolished. But, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the last enemy to be overcome is death and Certainly that's the physical death that all of us will face. And so uh, then, Paul says, then will be uh, brought, to, brought to pass saying, Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? So let's um, also consider what he says there that he says, uh, I have brought uh, through the gospel uh, life and immortality to light. So how has life been brought to light through the gospel? Well, let's bring out a few points there. First of all, the relationship that he would share with those who believed in him. It would be a shared relationship with the Father. Certainly that was not understood. In fact, we know that Job cried out for a go-between. If I only had an arbiter to plead my case to the Father, then uh, that would bring him comfort. But he didn't have that. But we know in John 17 that there is a special relationship that we share with the Father because of the Son. Jesus, as He's praying in the garden, says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may also glorify You. As You have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Certainly, there's a knowing of, of Christ, um, a knowing Him in an in a intimate way, that, that there is a fellowship, a, a deep fellowship there. And... We know, for example, in Revelation 3 and verse 20, as he's writing to the church in, in the Laod to the Laodiceans, he says, I stand and I knock. And he who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. There would be a special relationship there. Uh, we know that that relationship is a lot different than the one the Jews had, where Hebrews 12 says, you have not come to a mountain that shakes with lightning, and, and, and they were afraid to even come near to the mountain, because, uh, because of Christ, we have come to the uh, church of the firstborn. We, we are able to come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in, in, 
time of need. And that's different than, than what they had, certainly. So the life in Christ includes having Him as uh, our mediator. Uh, we need to also understand that, um, that we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. <clears throat> True life means that there is no respecter of persons with God. And certainly we should all have that mindset as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 16 says, uh, starting in verse 15, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Well, is that different from what they, they had as, as in the time of the Old Covenant? Certainly. They were not to welcome the foreigner in the temple. The, the Moabites, the Ammonites were not allowed into the temple. We know that there was uh, a prohibition against marrying foreign wives. And, and we know that just based on uh, the, the place of one's birth, that was a divider for them. But it was also true about one's social status, whether you were wealthy or whether you were poor. Certainly, <clears throat> that is the case today, uh, that there are, in the world, divisions based upon uh, our wealth, our, you know, how much do we have in our bank account, uh, what kind of car do we drive, where do we live. Certainly, there are divisions that our community, our society makes based upon those lines and based upon where one would be employed a street sweeper versus a uh, political official you know one would be viewed as less important than another probably the street sweeper is more important I think but, um, but I think those kind of lines are drawn today right uh, certainly the way one looks someone's appearance. You know, all of those things are when we're viewing one another according to the flesh, we're going to say, I, I don't like this person, I do like this person because of how they look, because of where they're from, because of you know, what they're wearing, all of these different criteria, but Paul says no longer, no longer. We can't even know Christ according to the flesh. We only know Him in the Spirit. So, since that's the case, he's saying, now you regard one another in the same way, but only according to the Spirit. So that's certainly part of our life in Christ. Um, another aspect is that... Uh, there's a spiritual battle being waged. I don't think they understood that in the old law. What Paul writes about in Ephesians 6, <coughs> about 
the, um, the putting on of the whole armor of God so that you might withstand the wiles of the devil and the shield of faith and how that will protect us from the, the fiery darts of the evil one. Certainly I think that spiritual battle being waged is something now we get to see um, in its fullness through the gospel. Um, we could also say that we don't have to miss this life. Uh, that's another aspect of being in the, in the spirit while we're, in the, while we're on this earth. We don't have to miss this life. Um, we don't have to look at, at things the way Martha did. Martha, uh, certainly, does that mean to say we're not going to be sorrowful when, when a loved one passes? Of course not. There, there's a place for that. But, um, <coughs> Jesus <coughs> reminds her that we, those who stay in Him and, and remain in Him, will never die. Our groaning body waits for a spiritual body. Uh, let's look at that in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6 and 7. So we're always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. So, we're truly, we're absent from Him in the full fullness of the sense that we know that when we're with Him, we'll see Him even as He is, 1 John 3 tells us. We'll know that we'll be like Him. We know that we'll look upon the Son. We know, verse 4 says, that we'll be fully clothed. And mortality will be swallowed up by life. All of those things should help us not to miss this life at the end of the day. As hard as it is to leave loved ones and to see them go, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't hold on to this life. Paul is a good example of that. He said, to depart and be with the Lord is much better. But I'll, I'll remain here for you because I want to serve you. Um, so, let's also look at this idea of uh, immortality being uh, brought to light. Paul said um, that through the gospel, immortality, not only life, what it would mean to live on this earth as a Christian, but ultimately what it would be uh, on that day when, when I'm fully clothed with immortality. We see that um, there's several ideas. Uh, first of all, the word is, um, is a Greek word, aftharsia. I, th I thought this was interesting. It, it talks about uh, living in perpetuity or living... Um, in, in an incorruptible dwelling. Um, but let's look at what we do know about this life. First of all, we're already in 2 Timothy, so let's look at um, 2 Timothy 4.18.
And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Paul, was he speaking of his fleshly body there? No, he, he, we know that he was ultimately beaten, and history tells us that he suffers a very cruel death in, in Rome. Ultimately, though, his soul would be preserved. And, and it's a heavenly kingdom. It's a, it's a reign where God, um, God is uh, on his throne. We see uh, that it will be eternal glory, 2 Timothy 2. Verse 10, Paul says, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So, we see the throne scene in the book of Revelation, and we see that the glory that those innumerable hosts of... of uh, angels and, and those who have gone on before, that they were, um, that seems to be a future picture there, but it's, it's really, it shows that the glory would be God's. It's not glory for, for me, but because I'm celebrating and I'm, I'm reigning with God in that, in that place, then I get to share in that glory. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 8. This is another picture because I will receive a crown. A crown of righteousness. Paul says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. First point we can see here is that there is one day where all who have loved his appearing will be rewarded. That God has fixed a day. That it's not a, a judgment one that Richard would have and Robin would have a different judgment and Chuck and James would have their own judgment. This would happen in one day. There is a day here that uh, I would receive the, the same crown that Paul received on that day <coughs> if I've loved his appearing. And let's look at a couple of verses right here in Timothy where Paul describes a day. First of all, there in verse 12, this, um, this verse that we all know so well, Because it's a song we sing. Um, says that, For this reason I suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. That day. So first thing Paul said, it's really like God is, is a keeper of a safe, like we think of at a bank. 
And I'm making deposits every day in that vault. I'm laying up treasures in heaven, and that God is opening that vault and putting those treasures in that vault and keeping them secure <coughs> so that nothing could ever break in and steal that treasure. God's keeping that commitment until that day. And certainly, as he goes down in verse 18, the Lord speaking about Onesiphorus, the household of Onesiphorus, that he often refreshed me, Paul says in verse 16, was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So again, that day, and there was a plea for mercy there. Certainly, um, that's an important reminder for us that scarcely, if scarcely the righteous enter the kingdom of heaven, then where shall the sinner and the rebellious be? If, if a man, if Onesiphorus, who refreshed Paul, was not ashamed of his chains, he was a zealous believer, if he needed mercy in that day. In other words, the status quo uh, of occasional faithfulness is not, is not enough. We... We, we need to not measure our righteousness compared to those around us. We know that, Paul says, that makes us fool, foolish. But rather, I need to look into this mirror, this perfect law of liberty. And that's how I should judge my life. Um, but then, we see another uh, statement there that we really just read as, as Paul was saying, that there was a crown of righteousness laid up that God would give to me on that day. So, where else? Um, we see Acts 17 talking about a day. And I'm, I'm finishing up here. Um, intentionally left my watch at home. So. Um, so, Acts 17, where Paul is in Athens, telling a lot of these hearers for the first time about Christ and about immortality and about uh, they will give an account for the way they've lived in this body. And he says in verse 30, Acts 17, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained and he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So, just like Paul says there, he brought life and immortality to light. He illustrated it through his own resurrection. So now we can have hope of the resurrection in our, our own body. Because Christ illustrated it, and he says here, God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world by this same man who rose from the dead. So, 
we need to be prepared for that day. Um, I heard a quote one time. I, I really liked it. It says, uh, God is voting for you. Saving, Satan is voting against you, but you cast the deciding vote. So that's important to think about, that there will be, I will give an account for my life on that day, but God has not left me uh, ignorant. Uh, he's, he's not withheld anything from me. And that should help us as we think about this idea. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I believe. And I'm persuaded he will keep what I've committed to him until that day. Have you been making deposits in God's vault? Or have you been making all your deposits in this world's vault? Only you can answer that question. But uh, certainly, we, we have a lot to hope for. He has told us everything we need to know about true life as a Christian and uh, what enough, enough about immortality that we can uh, be excited about that and know for sure that all the trials and tribulations of this life will be no more. All of those things will be a distant memory. And I can um, hopefully be like Paul and say, I groan in this body. I long to be in that spiritual body. Uh, we need to every day have that outlook more that no matter how good things might be here, we think uh, we, we maybe um, should realize that you know, maybe we've just become content with very little. Uh, but God has prepared something so much greater for us to, to enjoy if we'll only put our hope in Him. Thank you.